Okay, well, um, I suppose I had quite a conventional background uh, going to business school at Wharton uh, in my early 20s, and after that I joined the Boston Consulting Group uh, as a so-called strategy consultant. This was the great new invention of the time. Uh, looking at the economics of businesses and trying to decide how they could get competitive advantage. And I did that until they fired me, <laughs> almost fired me. I managed to resign just before they actually did fire me. And I joined another uh, consulting, strategy consulting firm called Bain & Company. Um, and Bain & Company and BCG are now two of the three largest uh, consulting firms of their sort during the world, the other one being, uh, the other one being McKinsey. And Bain & Company were stupid enough to make me a partner uh, pretty quickly. And then three of us spun off and founded LEK. So there was a Lawrence, there was an Evans, and there's a Kosh, or was a Kosh. And uh, we had a, a very um, fortunate time in the 1980s when a lot of European companies were looking at uh, how they should uh, reorganize themselves and how they should restructure themselves to focus on their core markets and so forth. And uh, after six years, I decided that I'd had enough of working very, very long hours. And so I retired at the great age of 39. <laughs> and then couldn't find anything much to do. And then eventually I decided that I would do a combination of writing books about business and ideas and also investing, trying to use those ideas, very unusual for a venture capitalist or a uh, private equity person to actually um, base the whole of the investment program on whether or not the business was what we call a star business, that is a, a leader in a high growth market. And uh, that has proved to be, amongst many disasters, uh, quite a successful um, strategy. As, as you know, you know, investing is one of the greatest businesses that there is because you can be wrong most of the time. But if you're right about one or two um, very successful firms, then uh, you can make a lot of money. Uh, so anyway, that was, the, that was my ambition. That's what I've been doing. Uh, I, I'm a great believer in not working very hard. I, I, one of the other things that I believe in, apart from BCG's growth share matrix, is the 80-20 principle, which I've written a book about. And, and that says that you, you, you basically achieve most of what you uh, do achieve in a relatively small proportion of your time and so I have always tried to work um, you know uh, pleasantly and to work on things that I'm interested in one of the things that I'm most curious about and have always been curious about is why are some people successful how is it that that uh, you know some people have extraordinary success and great impact on the world and yet, if you look very carefully, if you know the people involved, or if you look very carefully at the sources and the history books and all the rest of it, it's very often people who are not particularly um, competent, not particularly hugely gifted, although some, some people who are very successful are, uh, but somehow they manage to be successful, and that has intrigued me. And that's what led me eventually to write the book that, um, that we're talking about, Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It. Um, and so what I did was to try and identify some common characteristics of people who I thought were, in a way, more successful than they deserved. And I started with about 
2030 uh, potential reasons for that success and eventually I narrowed it down to nine and the, the most curious thing is that of the cases that I looked at uh, of people who'd had a, a terrific impact on the world in one way or another nearly all of them had all of these nine characteristics and uh, that's what I that's what I wrote the book about. And you can tell me which individuals you studied um, to discover these principles and why were they chosen? Why were they chosen? It was it was pretty subjective. They were people that I knew had been very successful, either because I'd known them personally in a few cases or because I'd studied them um, as as a historian, as a as a, an undergraduate historian, or they were people that I had come across in the business world or knew about uh, because of um, their success in business or in some cases their success in other fields. I mean, Nelson Mandela was one of those people and I happened to be living in South Africa at the time that, that, that he um, attained the presidency. And so um, he was, you know, I, I knew quite a lot about him. I knew a lot of people who knew him. Um, I was quite lucky to know F.W. de Klerk, who was his predecessor and his deputy president and his mentor, in fact. Um, so there were people that, that I had come across and I knew had achieved a great deal and I knew something about them so that when I, um, when I read about them, I, I think I could get a pretty good fix on um, why they'd been successful and why they hadn't been successful. So it was quite, it was quite subjective. It was just based around people that uh, interested me or people that I knew something about. And, and how many individuals do you think have sort of applied these, the 80-20 principle? Um, do you think any of the individuals you, you, you studied were sort of workaholics, more on the workaholic side? Um, actually, that wasn't a character. I did look at that, Stephen, and it, it was very interesting that that you know, I had the hypothesis that actually they would tend to be people who were like me and in fact had had, had focused on the 80-20 principle and weren't particularly hard working, but that wasn't the case. It was a case probably in about half the, half of the people, but uh, the other half of people were very, very hard working. So that criterion went into the, into the waste paper basket. Another one which I was very fond of was that, that they would be people who had taken high risks. But actually, when I looked at it, it was only true in, I think, uh, uh, about 40% of the cases, about eight of the people, that, that, that the 20 people that I studied, um, uh, actually had taken very high risks. Um, and some of them had not. And, and from your studies, so what do you think were sort of the, the main key um, principles that all these individuals uh, followed? Well, the, the nine of them that are listed in the book, I can go through, but one of the ones which I came up with, which I don't think anyone else has, um, has actually identified, is that they all had a transforming experience of one sort or another at a certain stage in their career. And um, for Mrs. Thatcher, for example, she'd been prime minister and not a very successful prime minister for three years. And then the worst thing happened to her, you know, she said it was the worst moment of her life when, uh, when uh, Pinochet invaded the, the Falkland Islands. And that actually was for her, her transforming experience because before that, she'd been a rather pedestrian person who was you know reasonably successful not unreasonably successful she was someone who actually had knuckled down and she'd 
she'd, uh, she'd uh, cultivated the right people. She'd been quite a successful uh, junior minister. She was someone who um, was quite popular with the grassroots and so on and so forth. But she, she became prime minister almost by accident uh, because uh, she was the only person who would take on Ted Heath who was profoundly unpopular because he was so gratuitously rude to his people. Uh, and uh, she, managed to, she managed to win. Uh, but when she became prime minister, she had not really been very successful. In fact, she was almost the, the most unsuccessful prime minister. You know, you remember the Labour Isn't Working campaign in uh, 1979. Well, uh, she, she, she's, she implied that in fact she could deal with unemployment. But unemployment, I think, was three quarters of a million when she took over. And after two or three years, it had gone up to something like two million. You know, inflation had gone up, growth had gone down, <laughs> recession had come, a lot of businesses had gone bankrupt. Uh, and it, it did seem that she was uh, slated to lose the next election, uh, which would be in 1983, possibly. Yes, it would have to, be, have, to have been in 1983. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, you got the formation of the um, Social Democratic Party with Roy Jenkins and the Gang of Four, uh, who went to 50% in the opinion polls, and it looked as though uh, Mrs Thatcher would be turfed out of office. In fact, very, you know, quite, quite likely that she would be thrown out of office by her own party before the election came. And then the Falklands came, you know, and... You know, I take nothing away from Mrs Thatcher because it's very, very unlikely that any man in that position, particularly if they'd been in the Second World War or had known people who had been in the Second World War, would actually ever have contemplated what the US Navy called a military impossibility to retake the islands. But uh, Mrs Thatcher thought otherwise and she gambled her whole career on a very unlikely prospect of retaking the Falklands. Um, as you know, you know, war is a very dicey business and, you know, she was willing to take that risk. Um, and miraculously, almost miraculously, it actually came off. Uh, alongside that, she was very firm while the task force was sailing that uh, it took six weeks for them to get to the Falkland Islands. Uh, she, she was very clear that she would not allow any compromise with Argentina, which was pretty much almost forced upon her by um, by the Americans. Um, but she, she she resolutely resisted any idea of joint sovereignty or anything like that. Uh, she had to pretend to be reasonable, but she had to also be very very firm. And it was, a, it was a virtuoso performance. You wouldn't have thought that she had it in her to, to do that. Um, but once the islands had been retaken, it completely transformed her political prospects uh, because the people who were undermining her, basically the wets, the, the left wing, as it were, of the Conservative Party, um, were completely and utterly mesmerised by her success there. Uh, and, as you know, she then pursued some very controversial policies, uh, which 
which did make a huge difference to Britain, whether you like them or not. Um, and she was a very, very successful prime minister until, of course, she was thrown out of office through overconfidence. But um, that was a, that was a transforming experience for her. And in business, if you look at uh, Jeff Bezos, all of his success was based upon Amazon, and Amazon actually had been uh, had been blueprinted in the firm that he worked for before, which was called D.E. Shaw and, and Company, Desco, founded by a computer scientist called David Shaw. And David Shaw engaged uh, Jeff Bezos when he was 26 years old, and the two of them got on like a house on fire, and their, their, their principal idea, or David Shaw's principal idea, was that nobody understood that the internet would be so important for retailing, uh, except David Shaw. And that was, that was his view, and it was pretty accurate, actually. Uh, he realised that this was going to happen, and he got Jeff Bezos to work on this project, um, which really developed the blueprint for Amazon in its entirety. Uh, and not only did they decide that they were going to be what they called the, the everything store, but they also decided that books would be the first category that they would enter, and they also decided that they would get people to write reviews on the site and so on and so forth. Um, and at a certain point, Bezos went to David Shaw and said, um, I know you want me to do this within Desco, but I actually want to do it on my own. And, and again, astonishingly and very generously, David Shaw, after taking Bezos round uh, a walk in Central Park for a couple of hours, uh, said, you know, I'll let you decide whether or not you're going to do this. He didn't even ask for a share in the company. I mean, it's just remarkable. Um, and then Bezos went off and did Amazon. But, he, you know, we would not have heard of Bezos and he would not be one of the richest people in the world were it not for the fact that he'd worked for this other company, D.E. Shore and Company. And similarly with Bill Bain, one of the other people, the founder of Bain & Company, you know, if he had not met um, Bruce Henderson, because he was uh, the development officer for the, the university that Henderson had gone to, uh, he would never have been offered the chance to be a, a major player in the Boston Consulting Group. He had no business background, he had no MBA, he didn't understand economics, he was a historian. And um, he'd been a, um, a, re a research historian and then jacked that in and decided that uh, perhaps he'd be a development officer <laughs> instead. Um, and his transforming experience was working in BCG. And then, of course, he decided to do the dirty on, on Bruce Henderson and uh, start his own firm. And he took a third of the staff of... BCG, who were making probably about three quarters of the profit in BCG, and and then you know he went away and found a completely different firm using the same ideas but in a completely different way, um, and so his transforming experience was also working in a very unique a unique firm who knew something that nobody else did. And that was quite a common theme for the, the, the business people, that they had had this experience of working in a, another company, which was a transforming experience. And 
you know, so you had some other pretty odd transforming experiences. Um, for example, Lenin's transforming experience was uh, knowing that his elder brother had been hanged by the Tsar for an alleged uh, attempt on his life. Uh, and that turned this very cheerful schoolboy into a totally determined and a vitriolic person who absolutely wanted to end the Tsarist regime and whose theory was that the it was amazing that, that, that the Tsars and their hangers-on who were a very small number of people should be able to rule a country like uh, Russia and he said why not us you know, if I can have uh, a group of very determined revolutionaries who are totally loyal to me and totally ruthless, then we can stage a coup and we can take over this country and we can destroy the incipient uh, democracy which started in, in 1917. So, you know, it was that very unfortunate experience was uh, what really started him on the path to... Um, to, to basically transforming not only Russia but a, a large proportion of the world followed the communist route for a long for a very long time. So that you know also was you know a, a transforming experience which was very very unusual. Um, Nelson Mandela's transforming experience was going to Johannesburg from a rural backwater and getting involved with the ANC there, um, which was you know quite remarkable. Um, and, you know, also, if you, if you look at the transforming experience that, uh, um, yeah, the transforming experience of Viktor Frankl was being sent to Auschwitz and, and other concentration camps by Hitler, um, and deciding there and then that he had the freedom to, um, to outlive Hitler, that was his objective in the camps, and to write the book which he was going to write, which he thought was the the the, the third wave of psychology um, about existential freedom and about meaning, the importance of meaning in people's lives, and uh, and he decided that that what he would do when he when he when he went to the concentration camps, they took all his possessions away. They took the draft of the book that he was going to write. Well, what he did was to copy down on little bits of paper or scraps of cigarette packets or whatever uh, the ideas that he had, so that he didn't, you know, didn't forget them. And then he saw himself as lecturing on the same themes after he had left the concentration camps, assuming that that you know this whole apparatus of evil would be wiped out. And lo and behold that happened that was his transforming experience so one of the things that i think is very important for anyone if they really want to be unreasonably successful more successful than in a way any of us deserve because i think success is um you know it's a, an a, a astonishing privilege but it's also a, astonishingly a function of luck but if you want to move the odds in your favor you've got to make sure that you have a transforming experience and you know, that's, that's one of the things that I'm very interested or an evangelist for, because I think we do need more creative people. We do need people who have more of an impact on the world. And that 
that, you know, one of the ways that you can do that is by making sure that you had a transforming experience. The transforming experience that the 20 people I write about in the book had were not self-engineered, they just happened to them. But one of my themes is if you can actually look at what happened to these other people, then in fact you can, you can sort of copy what happened to them, even though they themselves did not know that a transforming experience was, was very important. We do. And so we can say, well, you know, I always say to someone in their 20s, you know, who's interested in making an impact on the world, you know, have you had a transforming experience? And I explain what a transforming experience is. Most of them haven't. And then I explain some of these case studies and, and say to them, well, you know, if you want to be incredibly successful, you've got to acquire a unique mission or a unique knowledge. And the best way of doing that is to find um, a person or an organization that knows something that nobody else knows and go and work there for a time and and then work out your own um, different but similar if that's not a contradiction an oxymoron uh, way of doing it because you know you you can't you can't ever be successful by being a pale imitation of someone else but you can take ideas that someone has proven to be very very powerful and apply them in, in a different context uh, a good example of that is BCG worked out, I believe, you know, one of the most incredibly powerful ways of being successful is to have a star business, a, you know, a business which becomes a leader or is the leader in a high growth market. Well, you know, they applied that in consulting by advising people to do that. Bill Bain not only did that, but he also said, well, why can't we use these ideas to help us make venture capital and private equity investments and back the companies that we think are star businesses or have the potential to be star businesses. And in, in Bain & Company's first, sorry, Bain Capital's first 10 years, they actually increased their assets under management by 100% a year. And, you know, that must be true because they issued a prospectus saying that it was true and the lawyers had been through it and all the rest of it. It was quite extraordinary performance. And indeed, they've continued to be. Not obviously, no one can do that for very long. Otherwise, they'd own the whole world. But, but you know, it, it is just extraordinary that you can take a very powerful idea that you really believe in. Because unless you've had the experience of working in a firm like BCG or Boning Company in the early days, where it's so exciting because it's new and you, you do know something that other people don't know, and it does make money one way or another, you know, unless you've actually had that experience, you won't believe it. Because <laughs> you tell people, well, actually, we can have 100% returns for five years or something like that. They just won't believe it. And, of course, you can't continue at that rate. But you don't have to continue at that rate because you know, anyone that can invest and compound money at 20% a year uh, is one of the very best investors in the world. And you know, I know that it can be done uh, by investing in star businesses.